What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? one 288 ewtn I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. one 288 3986 Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. We do this program each and every Monday through Friday specifically for the non-Catholics in our audience who have questions about the Catholic faith and they're not quite sure where to get the answers. It's also for our Catholic listeners who perhaps were approached by a co-worker who says, uh, can you explain purgatory to me? And the Catholic says, well, not really. So uh, we're here to provide answers for everybody. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial the number 1 and then 205 271 2985. And of course, you can always send us an email. The address for that, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. Jeff Burson handles social media for us. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, well, hey, we are streaming those platforms right now. Just put your question in the comments box. Jeff will see that. He'll shoot it to us here in Studio One, and we will take it from there. Uh, I do recommend that you call, call early because it is Friday. Phone lines tend to get very busy very early. So we don't want to uh, have that question hanging out over the weekend and not get it answered till next week. Call today. Call now. 833-288-EWTN. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Andrews. Tom, how are you today? Very well. How are you, my friend? I'm doing decent. Thank you. Any uh, weekend plans for you? Um, yes. I am hopping on a plane and going to Cedar Rapids, Iowa uh, to join the good folks at Catholic Radio KMMK in Cedar Rapids. Fantastic. You'll be speaking on their behalf? I'm speaking on their behalf. And coming back Sunday. Sounds wonderful. We'll look forward to your safe return. We're going to lead off with this interesting question here from Moses, who says, You mentioned the ability of the devil and his demons' ability to somewhat tell a person or tell what a person is praying or thinking uh, to manipulate and destroy. My question is this. In our diaconate formation course, it's been assumed that all angels do not have perfect knowledge, that there is a hierarchy of knowledge within the ranks of the angels. So does the devil have perfect knowledge? I'm assuming not, but regardless, do his minions have perfect knowledge? very respectfully, Moses. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, no, they don't have perfect knowledge, and and their knowledge of our mental states is not perfect either. It's an inference from our behavior and presumably from our biology. And uh, and, and this is all terribly speculative as well, also. I mean, it's not sure. like there's a dogma on this. It's, this <laughs> is what theologians have tried to discern just from the nature of the of the creatures involved. Saint, it was St. Thomas who reflected on uh, how the devils might be able to discern uh, what humans were thinking, not not in the specifics, but in the general. And and Thomas, believe it or not, had a had a sophisticated psychology for the 13th century. He didn't have the benefits of modern neuroscience, but he did recognize that that human thought takes place in a material medium that it's connected to the brain. He he had the the ancient theory of the humors to guide him, which of course is false. 
but uh, but there's a smidgen of truth in the idea of humors in that in that uh, human consciousness does take place in a material medium. We know it's neurotransmitters and not and not the humors. But Thomas's view was that the devils were good enough students of human biology that they could, uh, as it were, um, observe the you know the pattern of the humors and have some idea of the kind of thing that a human might be thinking about. You know, if you press on this button, you feel lust, and you press on that button, you might feel pride, that uh -huh. sort of thing. Not specific thoughts, but sort of the general tenor, and that they could play to their knowledge to exacerbate the, uh, the temptation. Moses, thanks so much uh, for your question. Here's one, a kind of sad one here. This is from Noel. I have a baby daughter who died when she was oh. nine months old due to complications of her Arnold Chiari 2 condition. She was baptized when she was just three months old. My question is, do I still have to pray for her salvation and offer Mass for her every time of her death anniversary? Sure. I appreciate the question. No, you're under no obligation to do that. And and my presumption uh, is that she's in heaven and, and she has no actual sin uh, to do penance for and she is baptized. And so, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, she's a saint. Now, she's not a canonized saint, so this isn't a you know, an infallible declaration of the church, but <laughs> sure. it's a theological opinion based on the common opinion of the church. So I, I think that you don't, you can pray to her uh, probably more reliably than you can pray for her. Noel, again, uh, thank you for your email and thank you. And uh, we do, we uh, are very sorry for your loss. Here's one now from Barry. I got this question, he says, from a struggling Christian. If God knows everything, why would he create a person that he knew for certain would go to hell for all eternity? Yep, great question. Can't answer it specifically. Don't know, right? So what what we do know is this. I can give you some parameters. Uh, scripture and the church tell us that God does not specifically desire evil. Okay. But God does permit evil uh, so that He can bring out of it a greater good. But He doesn't specifically intend the evil as such. Uh, he also desires that all people be saved, and He gives sufficient grace to everyone that they can, in fact, be saved. And so when people sin, it is their own agency that is implicated, that's at fault here, even if God foresees that outcome. Okay, well, very good. Now, do you remember a question we answered a little while back regarding a, uh, a, a comment about a mouse or a mice in beer? I do, absolutely. Okay. So this is from Kathy, who says, I'm still chuckling over that comment I heard from Dr. Anders about what a comment about a mouse or mice in beer and a priest's reply in confession. I'm sure that was heard frequently in confession back then, the sin being that they removed the dead mouse, served the beer that they themselves would not drink. Yeah, that's a good thought. So what, <laughs> let me, let me, the people are probably listening and going, what is he what? talking about, right? What? So, you know, when I was in uh, a professional historian and I was reading these medieval sources, I came across one time some medieval confessional manuals guiding priests on what to do in the confessional mm -hmm. if people came in with different sins. And one of the things that I never could figure out was, what do you do when a penitent comes in and confesses to having had a mouse in their beer? Mm. And I'm like, what? I've never confessed having mice in beer, you know, and that that so this this caller is speculating about what might be behind that. That's a good idea, actually. Yeah, maybe that's yeah. it. There you go. And uh, if you would like to send us an email for a future show, here's the address: ctc at ewtn.com. Ctc at ewtn.com. But you know what? It is Friday, and we've got busy phones uh, with a couple of openings at eight three three two eight eight ewtn. That's eight three three. 288-3986. In a moment, we'll talk to Bob in Wisconsin here on Call to Communion on EWTN. Stay with us. 
It's called a communion here on EWTN on this very busy uh, Friday afternoon. We have one line open. You can grab it by calling 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. And of course, if you do get a busy signal, give us about five or 10 minutes and uh, call us back. Let me tell you right now, though, about a wonderful something from EWTN's religious catalog. It is the St. Teresa of Avila statue. It's uh, 13 inches tall. It's made of fiberglass, crafted with all the tradition brought from Spain some 80 years ago. It's a favorite saint to many folks, of course. It depicts St. Teresa of Avila uh, dressed in the Carmelite habit with a white dove on her shoulder. In one hand, she holds a quill, the other an open book. Now, again, the statue, 13 inches high, including the base. Check it out by going to EWTNRC.com. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. Uh, if you want, you can just put in uh, Teresa of Avila statue in the search box. I'm sure you'll get a, a very nice picture, and we'll, you'll, you'll know what we're talking about here. Again, EWTN. RC.com. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Beginning today with Bob in Wisconsin, listening on the great WSFI. Hey, Bob, happy Friday. What's on your mind today, sir? Uh, yeah, I've, my question is this. Uh, recently, saints have been, uh, you know, proclaimed saints shortly thereafter after they uh, died, like John Paul II and Mother Teresa. But in many cases... Saints aren't declared saints for a long time until after their de- uh, they, their death, and in some cases, hundreds of years, I think. Mm-hmm. So, uh, my question is, uh, if they're declared saints hundreds of years ago, were they saints back then? As as far as does the, the their uh, start in heaven? Yeah, I got you. I understand the question. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. So here's the position. Canonization, the process of canonization, is not not the process by which the Church votes people into heaven. All right, and that that would be—you might be construing it that way. So you can go to heaven whether or not you're a canonized saint. In fact, the vast majority of people that are in heaven are not canonized saints. They're saints, but they're not officially canonized by the Church. Right. All canonization is, is an official declaration by the Church that some soul is already in heaven. A recognition. It's a recognition of what God has already already done, right? The Church doesn't make it the case that they go to heaven. It just simply identifies them as having gone to heaven. Okay. Now, why does the Church canonize people? It's It's not to make them in heaven. It's so that the faithful can know that it's safe to venerate them as saints. Huh. Right? Because the, the logic of veneration is that we are asking the saints to pray for us, and uh, you would like to know that the person whose intercession you are asking for is, in fact, a saint and not, uh, you know, not some sort of shyster, you know, <laughs> who just, yeah. you know, was a, was a pretend saint. Very good. Bob, is that helpful for you? Yep, that answers my question. Thank you very much. Fantastic. Thanks for your call. And that opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. We have a couple of lines open at the moment. 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this Friday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Janet listening in Doylestown, PA on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Hello, Janet. What's on your mind today? Hi, I have a question. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I work in a nursing facility, and we have lots of Catholics, 
Jews and Muslims, and we get into conversations, and they say they believe in God, but I don't understand how they can believe in our God, because I don't think they believe in the Trinity. I'm confused. How do I defend my Catholic belief in God? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So when people suggest that Jews, Muslims, and Christians believe in the same God, you have to really qualify that statement, okay? So there is a sense in which many people of different religious traditions can be said to believe in the same God. Uh, And let me give you what those conditions would be. Even before there was Christianity or Islam, back in the, the Hellenistic period when you had the Greek philosophers, uh, and, and for that matter, even before philosophy, in some of the traditional African tribal religions of West Africa, for example, you will find the belief that while there might be many gods, you know, gods of trees and stone and woods and fields and whatever it might be, that above all of them there is a kind of supreme deity, that there's a god above the gods, a god who is the source and origin of all things, the, the, you know, the, the, the supreme reality from which everything else flows. And, and though the religions of the world may know little about such a god, many of them acknowledge that there, that there is a place where the metaphysical buck stops. Okay. You know, that there's that than which nothing greater can be conceived. And, uh, and so we could all be said to believe in God, those of us who acknowledge that there is such a first principle from which everything comes. Hmm. Now, when you get down into the specifics and say, well, what is the identity of that first principle? Uh, what is it like? Well, that's where the differences come in. I see. Right? And so Jews, Muslims, and Christians all acknowledge the existence of a creator God who is the source and origin of all things. Okay. But they say very different things about what that God's intentions are for the world and what that God has revealed about himself and, and so forth. And in that respect, we do not agree. We do not agree. Uh, now, the, per- the particular differences between Jews, Muslims, and Christians cannot be determined with reference to natural philosophy or science because they are derived entirely from revelation so you know the quran gives one account of who that god is the Uh bible gives another account of who that god is and as you correctly noted the distinctive of the christian religion is belief in the triune god now the only way you can arrive at knowledge of the trinity is through jesus christ because the new testament presents christ to us as a the son as a person who is other than the father and yet both of them fully and uniquely God, and God being in, in, in one God only, right? And so the doctrine of the Trinity is an outgrowth of our doctrine of Christ, the incarnation, and the divinity of Christ. Okay. Hope that's helpful for you, Janet. And uh, thank you so much for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. Got a call from Christina in Dallas. She could not hold, but uh, she did leave with our, her question with our call screener, and that is, I took some medals to the Holy Land. I touched them to the Holy Sepulchre and other holy places. If I touch other things to it, are they third-class relics? Yeah, so, so typically the way we understand third-class relics would be an object that's brought into contact with a first-class relic, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so, you know, is the Holy Sepulchre a first-class relic? Well, you know, if it, if it touched the body of Christ— then yes, it would be a relic of Christ's body, I suppose. Yeah. Um, now, if you can, you, you know, is it? Can you take a <clears throat> third-class relic and touch it to another third-class relic and make, you know, a third, a, si- a, third a third-class third, third relic prime or something? <laughs> um, that's a good question. I mean, I, I suppose so. Uh, in you know, 
I, I don't I don't know if I've ever considered that question, but we do have a rule about holy water. Like you can you can make holy water from holy water provided you don't dilute it to a certain extent. Okay. You know. Um so yeah, good question. Very good. It's called a communion here on EWTN. A couple lines just opened up for you if you want to grab one eight three three two eight eight EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Andrews, eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. Deborah is listening in, in New Orleans on the Great Catholic Community Radio. Deborah, what's on your mind today? Okay, I am a cradle Catholic. However, I'm involved in a Bible study group where most of them are Baptists or more Catholics and became Baptists. What we are doing is watching the chosen, and there are workbooks that go along with watching the chosen. The first session is in the workbook. It specifically said that Mary Magdalene supported Jesus' ministry financially. And I have never heard that before. And the other members of the group had not also. So one of the ladies who is Baptist said she's going to try to find out what this means. And she said, why don't you try to find out what this means? I can help and you. I, call- I can totally help you. I, I got the answer. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, we read the following. After this, Jesus traveled from one city and village to another. He spread the good news about God's kingdom. The twelve apostles were with him. Also, some women were with him. They had been cured from evil spirits and various illnesses. These women were Mary, also called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, Joanna, whose husband Chusa was Herod's administrator, Susanna, and many other women. They provided financial support for Jesus and his disciples. Ah, so it's, it's true. So the, the, the scriptures tell us that the way Jesus paid his way, as it were, <clears throat> was he had lay followers who traveled with him who supported him out of their own means. And you remember that passage in the gospel where Jesus says, if you give a cup of cold water to one of those little ones, uh, you will not lose your reward? That's what he's referring to. Mm. He's referring to the lay followers who supported his itinerant ministry, saying that you, you also have a share in God's kingdom, and your, your contributions to my ministry will be recompensed by God. And what was that first scripture reference again? Luke chapter 8. Okay, verse, Deborah. Verse 1 to 3. There you go, Deborah. Is that helpful for you? Very helpful. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you so much as well. It is called a communion here on EWTN. Interesting question here from Dennis in Washington State. Dear Dr. Anders, how can I trust conscience? I am another Protestant Christian who finds himself drawing ever closer to the Catholic Church. You have spoken about conscience, and I think you've said it is of some sort of paramount importance that we should never violate it. You've used the example both uh, for joining the church and also for not joining, if your conscience tells you so. Well, if my conscience is that still, small voice within me, how can that ever be something I should put much trust in? I would think many errors, horrors, and heartbreaks in our world's history are from people, quote, just following their conscience. 
Can you help me understand this? Again, that's from Dennis in Washington yeah, State. Yeah, thanks. So first of all, that's a terrible definition of conscience. Pardon my saying so. Still a little small voice inside of me. That's not conscience. Mm. Conscience is a judgment of the practical reason. Ah. Right. So when you when you make a rational determination of what is the thing to be done, and, and you're not basing it on some sort of... Uh, funny internal feelings, some yeah. ushy-cushy, woo-woo nonsense. You're basing <laughs> it on empirical realities and what you know about the exigencies of a particular case. So your reason has to be involved. If it's not a judgment of reason, then it's, it's, it's contrary to the good of the human person and therefore immoral. St. Thomas, in fact, teaches that sin is nothing other than an irrational act. If you start going off, you know, in, in pursuit of woo-woo feelings, you're behaving very irrationally, fanatically, superstitiously even, and that's, that's, that's not what we mean by conscience. Um, conscience is the judgment of the practical reason, and that's what gives it what gives it its obligatory force. Is that if you have to make a moral choice, if you have to perform a moral act, mm-hmm. you you need to make an effort to do the right one. Well, yeah, right. And and w- when I'm trying to discern the right thing to do, if I can't rely on my judgment that this is in fact the right thing to do, then there's there's literally nothing that obliges me, nothing compels me to act morally, other than my conviction this is the moral thing to do, right? That's why you, everyone is obligated to obey the determinations of their practical reason. Now, what you say about conscience being erroneous is absolutely true. People have done horrific things by uh, by uh, listening to their consciences when their consciences are badly formed or misinformed. Yeah, and so. Part of our obligation to conscience is that we must make a good faith effort to inform our consciences. So, you know, let's say, for example, um, that, um, uh, well, I don't know, um, you know, the, the Nazi parties on the rise in Germany in the 1930s. And, uh, and you've heard, you know, some good things about it. And you've heard some bad things about it. And, uh, but, you know, everybody at work is voting Nazi. And they're putting a lot of pressure on you to vote Nazi. And you say, you know, I, if I dig into this thing, I might find some stuff I don't want to know. And it would be really uncomfortable for me at work. So I'll just, I'll just listen to the good reports about the Nazis, and I'll, I'll, I'll ignore the other stuff. And so that's fake news. I'm not going to listen to the bad reports. And, I'll just, and I'll, just, uh, you know, I'll just go with the flow. And since I'm only responding to what I take to be good reasons to vote for Nazis, <laughs> then I'm following my conscience. Right. That's not what we mean by following conscience. And there are people who did that in droves. Right. Uh, But no, you have an obligation to properly inform yourself. Right. And once you've properly informed yourself, still doesn't make you infallible. Conscience can make an error. But then you're off the hook morally. At least you've done your due diligence. You've done the best job that you can. If you claim to follow conscience, but you haven't made a good faith effort to inform your conscience, and really what you're doing is trying to excuse what you've already decided in your passions to do ahead of time, that that doesn't excuse your immoral acts. In fact, you're culpable for that. Um, Now, you're right. Even if I make a good faith effort, I may not succeed in properly forming my conscience. So here are some of the helps that God gives us. The church. The church. Right. So if you if you are unsure about some moral issue, ask the church, go to the authority in the church. Should I contracept or not in marriage? Church has an answer to that question. Doesn't have to be left up to your own discernment. Right. Can I get an abortion? Church has an answer to that. So go to the church, go to divine revelation, ask prudent and moral people. Follow the examples of the saints. Uh, Use natural reason. Don't follow funny internal feelings and still small voices. (laughs) Right. Rely yeah. on the practical intellect. Sure. 
Uh, Dennis, we do appreciate uh, your email there from Washington State. Glad that you're listening there. Uh, we have a couple of phone lines open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN if you have a question for Dr. David Anders. Or perhaps you'd like to explain to us uh, what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic. Here's that number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. And, of course, you can always uh, send us an email. The address for that is ctc at ewtn.com. In a moment, we're going to come back and get some more of those phone calls. Now is a great time to call while there are lines open. I can't guarantee that's going to be the case much longer. 833-288-EWTN. It's called to communion. Do stay with us. called Communion here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Hey, our friends in Louisville need to hear from you next week. Holy Family Radio, WLCR, uh, airing their 2023 Radiothon, and that's going to be next Thursday and Friday. So if you're listening in Kentucky or anywhere, please be sure to support your EWTN Catholic radio station. That is a great station serving Louisville for many years. Um, big out, big shout out there to uh, our, our dear friends who are uh, operating the great station there. And we will uh, keep them in our prayers as well. You remember earlier in the hour, David, that we took an, an email from Moses in Phoenix. Well, Moses sent a, a separate email where he says, I read that the Eastern Orthodox Septuagint might be different than the Roman Catholic Septuagint. Is this true? The Septuagint is different from, uh, is definitely different from some of the Latin translations of the Old Testament that we have in, in, in early Latin Christianity, and it's definitely different from the Masoretic Hebrew texts. If you pick up a, a modern critical translation of the Bible today, and that would include some critical translations that are current in, in Catholic use, most of them are going to be based on the Masoretic text, um, which is to say the Hebrew text. Uh, if you pick up the Orthodox Study Bible, by contrast, it'll be based on the Septuagint uh, text of the Old Testament. Now, arguably, I mean, you could make a case for either one. I mean, if you're trying to arrive at uh, the most probable, historically accurate, original version of the text, then you're going to want to go with uh, critical editions of the Hebrew, uh, which are probably older. Um, but uh, but they mutually inform one another in biblical scholarship. So, so he Hebraic... Uh, lower textual critics will consult the Septuagint because the Septuagint is working on a different Hebrew manuscript tradition from the rabbis from the medieval Masoretes, and so they mutually inform one another. Oh, there you go. Moses, thanks so much uh, for your email. And uh, just a moment ago, I was I was talking about our friends at Holy Family Radio in Louisville, and I, I do want to give a shout-out to our friend Vince Heiser, who's been with the station since its inception. He was probably the founder of the station. So uh, a big shout-out to you, Vince, and, and your great team there in Louisville. Be sure to support that station. They've been, they've been at it for a long time and doing a super job. Here's an interesting email now from Rita in New Hampshire, who says, Dr. Anders, you recently answered an email from Mark in Fort Myers, who's seeking an annulment and then intends to become a Catholic. He wondered what he could and could not do when he goes to church. Can he use holy water, etc., until such a time as he does become a Catholic? You guided him that he can attend Mass, 
make the signs of the sign of the cross, all those sort of things. But you seem to say he has to wait until that marriage is annulled before becoming a Catholic. I assume you were answering with the assumption that Mark had already remarried and is living with his new, quote, wife, therefore needs to have that first marriage annulled in order to be allowed to be brought into the church. But what if Mark had not remarried? What if he's just gotten a divorce? Shouldn't he be allowed to become baptized and welcomed into the church in full communion with the exception of matrimony? That's from Rita. Yeah, sure. You're absolutely correct. You're absolutely correct. And of course, I I know people in the Catholic faith who are civilly divorced without an annulment Uh and have not remarried that are active communicants in the church. Right. Because it's, it's, it's not it's not necessarily a sin to be civilly divorced. It can be can be depending on the circumstances sure. so here's an example um you know let's say I, I come home one day and tell my wife of 30 years i'm not about to do this uh <laughs> you know i've uh, i've decided there's somebody better looking down the street and i'm out of here and i'm gonna abandon you and my children well that would be the sin of abandonment yeah be ter- seriously wrong and and you know for me to genuinely repent of that sin i would have to seek to be reconciled to her and go back home yeah. right? unless she would refuse to have me which would be her canonical right Right. Um, so that would be no fault of hers. That'd be my sin, not okay. hers. She wouldn't. Nothing would happen to her in that case. Same okay. thing in reverse. If you know, wife to husband. Um, so a lot, but a lot of people are in divorces, and there's no moral fault of theirs. They didn't cause it. They're not the one at fault, uh, and that's no barrier to them continuing in their practice of the Catholic faith. Now, if a person who's validly married goes and hooks up with somebody else outside the church, well, then they are now fornicating, right? And so they got to rectify that before they can come back to communion. Very good. And thanks so much uh, for your email. Um, Before we uh, give out this next question here, I want to uh, promote the phone lines being open at 833-288-EWTN. If you call right now, we can hopefully get you on today's program, 833-288-3986. Here's a question now from Luciano watching us this afternoon on YouTube. Hey there, Luciano. He says, I was reading Matthew chapter 17 in my Bible, which is an RSV Catholic edition Bible. I found in the Catholic Bible that Matthew 17 verse 21 is missing. Does anybody know why? Um, Yeah, I do appreciate the question. So we don't have the manuscript that came from St. Matthew's hands. What we have are copies of copies and copies of copies of copies. And we've got a lot of them, and we've got them from different places throughout the Roman Empire. We have mm. them from Egypt and Southern Europe and Italy and North Africa and Asia Minor and all over the place as the, as the Gospels were distributed around the world. And when historians look at those ancient manuscripts and compare them, they find minor differences. And so you'll have one manuscript that has one text and another manuscript that'll have almost the same text, but it might differ in a word or two, sometimes maybe a sentence. And so you have the question, well, which one corresponds to what Matthew wrote? And so scholars have come up with principles to try to answer that question, to try to figure out what is the best reading, and there's there's a lot of principles that they follow, there's a list of them. And uh, and then then they compile what's called a critical text, which doesn't correspond to any particular ancient manuscript. It's a compilation of the various ancient manuscripts that have applied these principles of biblical criticism to try to get the best reading. And oftentimes, if there is a difference, they'll often, in a modern edition, they'll often put a footnote in, and at the bottom, you'll 
find something like some ancient manuscripts say this, mm. right? Okay. And so that's where those differences come from. Now, none of them really matter at all for Christian faith. I mean, in the sense that there's no dogma or a moral teaching that hangs on those tiny little textual variants. Mm-hmm. And, of course, as Catholics, we're not guided by the Bible alone anyway, right? So we have certainty in our active faith because of what Christ transmitted to the Church and what the Church teaches. Well, there you go. And Luciano, thank you so much for watching us this afternoon on YouTube. Call, call to communion here on this Friday afternoon here on EWTN. Lines open at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833 833- 2883986. Well, here's an interesting question. Uh, I was wondering if you would answer if you could share the difference between the Nicene Creed and the Apostolic Creed and based on the answer, why do we have both of them? Love your show, appreciate your time. That's from Lynn. Yeah, thanks. So the origin of creeds as a part of the Catholic faith, as a part of the Christian faith, dates well, arguably from the 1st century from the time of Christ. Uh, but really big time from the second century. Uh-huh. Remember in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, when Jesus says, uh, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. And, uh, you know, when Paul says, if you, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised, you, raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And You find these different formula, uh, even in sacred scripture, uh, that seem to have been professions of faith uh-huh. that Christians were meant to recite under certain circumstances. And, of course, Mark's language suggests that they were associated with the rite of baptism, that when you were baptized, you made an affirmation of faith, and sometimes in a stylized formula. Right? And that's exactly how creeds develop. So by the second century, you have churches uh, with, uh, uh, with these formalized statements of Christian belief. If you submit to Christian baptism, you are promising that you believe these things, and then you'd be given a list. And the Apostles' Creed developed out of something called the Old Roman Symbol. Uh, symbol's another word for a creed. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, that listed the basic facts about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the foundation of the Church. So that's where the Apostles' Creed comes from. Okay. The Nicene Creed was composed c- for a different reason. It, it wasn't a profession of faith uh, to be taken on at baptism. It was, in fact, a test for heresy. Right. This is by, by professing Christians who were already practicing the faith, but they disagreed with one another on a fundamental point of Christian doctrine, namely, is Jesus Christ God with a capital G full stop? And uh, there were a lot of Christians in the 4th century that answered that question in the negative. No, he's a kind of a lesser God, he's an angelic figure, he's, you know, he's maybe divine with a small d, but he's not God, capital G, full stop. Uh, but that wasn't the orthodox view. And the Council of Nicaea was called to settle this dispute with a group called the Arians. And the creed that, that emerged from that council we now know as the Nicene Creed. It was, it was finalized to the Council of Constantinople in 381, so sometimes it's called the Nicano-Constantinopolitan Creed, which is a big mouthful, so yeah. we prefer Nicene Creed. But it was there specifically to anathematize, to cut off the possibility of the Arian heresy. Very good. Appreciate that. It is called a communion here on EWTN. Tomorrow morning, be sure to join us for Conversations with Consequences with Dr. Gracie Christie. That's tomorrow, 7 a.m. Eastern here on EWTN. Dr. Gracie and the women of the Catholic Association will be on tomorrow's program, Mourning the Loss of Life in Israel, asking listeners to pray their rosary for Israel. Again, check it out early tomorrow morning, 7 a.m. Eastern, right here on EWTN Radio. 
All right, back to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN. John is a first-time caller in Orange County, New York, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hey, John, what's on your mind today, sir? Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Um, uh, like to, When Jesus talks about the kingdom, the kingdom is now, but not yet, is he referring to the kingdom that we're living in now, and our, uh, whatever we're doing, and our, uh, how we, our deeds and whatever we do here is going to get us into the kingdom? Um, can you explain yeah, that? Yeah, sure, our... absolutely. Thank you. So the notion of the kingdom of God is very commonly misunderstood, and there are some people that believe that this is a reference to the life of heaven. That's not actually correct. Um, although that's a common misunderstanding. The concept of the kingdom of God derives from Hebrew prophecy. In the Old Testament, there are many passages that look forward to a time when God was going to come and vindicate uh, his people, the Hebrews, the Jews. Uh, They, of course, went into exile in Babylon. Uh, When they returned from the exile, they were still subjugated by foreign powers, uh, first the Seleucid Hellenistic kings and then Rome. Um, so it was, it was kind of a bad, they were a bad way in the world, the Jews at that time. Mm. And they looked forward to a time when God would come and, and, uh, and vindicate them. And of course, the promise to Solomon would be he would, have a, he would have a political national kingdom and his son would rule over the throne forever. And God promised David he'd always have a descendant on the throne. So the expectation for most people in the first century was that God was going to reestablish the glories of the Solomonic Empire, that he was going to restore the Davidic monarchy um, and uh, uh, and he would kick out Israel's enemies, and that the Jews would be honored throughout the world. And there's language to that effect in the Old Testament about camels being brought to Jerusalem laden with gold, and foreign kings paying tribute, and the whole world coming to acknowledge the the God of Israel. And so that was kind of the basic expectation. And so when Jesus shows up on the scene and he says the kingdom of God is here. Uh, he wasn't talking about heaven or where you go when you die or how you have to be saved to go to heaven. And, and clearly his, and his, his, uh, his contemporaries understood him to be speaking about the restoration of the nation of Israel to its former glory. And that's why in the book of Acts, chapter 1, when Jesus is getting ready to ascend into heaven, his disciples say, Lord, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? That's very much their expectation, right? And uh, And... And, you know, Christ had said uh, that when this kingdom of God comes, that it will come with uh, kind of cataclysmic events, that the Jerusalem would be surrounded by armies and nations would rise against nation and this kind of thing. And, uh, and the, the doctrine becomes more developed in uh, St. Paul's epistles, particularly 1 Corinthians and 1 Thessalonians, when Paul is also looking forward to this kingdom, but he now recognizes that if you're on the other side of that arrival, that the, in addition to God restoring the fortunes of Israel, that, that he's also going to fulfill the long expectation of the resurrection of the dead. And so it takes on a more cosmic dimension. It's not just political. There's, a, there's, a, there's an eschatological dimension that's cosmic, uh, and in the book of Romans, he says he's going to renew the heavens and the earth. So it's big stuff going to happen, big stuff. Yeah. Now, um, you know, there was a time when folks thought, well, this is right around the corner. It's going to happen tomorrow. It's going to happen in our lifetime. Problem is, it's 2,000 years down the road, and yeah. it still hasn't happened. And so Second Peter, the book of Second Peter, reflecting on that expectation of an imminent arrival, says, well, you know, with God, a day is like a 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years is like a day. All right, so here's, 
here's what we can, and then of course Luke, which is later than the Gospel of Mark, says, well, the kingdom of God is among you. In Luke 17, when Jesus is asked by his disciples, well, where is this kingdom? And he says, well, don't say here it is or there it is, for the kingdom of God is within you. And so we put all this data together, and, and here's the picture that we have now. So the, the coming kingdom of God, we're not talking just about some sort of ethereal spiritual reality in the afterlife. We're, we're talking about a, a, an inbreaking of God in history, to be sure, right? That involves things like um, the vindication of his people and the resurrection of the dead and the change of our physical bodies and the renewal of the whole cosmos and the physical world, right? That, that's all in view. And that's, a, that's something that happens in time and space. It's not something that just happens in the timelessness of the afterlife. Um, uh, and yet, there is a sense in which Christians are called to live presently um, as, uh, as citizens of a foreign country, right? In anticipation of something that, that, um, that is imminently to arrive, and to align their lives today with the way things will be on the other side of that arrival. You know, so one of the promises of Isaiah, of course, is that when God comes in power, that the lion will lie down with the lamb, that peace will reign, and things like that. And what Jesus says is, if you want to be a participant, you know, after this eschatological event, you have to live now like citizens of that kingdom. So you yourself have to be a peacemaker. You yourself have to be pure in heart. You have to be detached from material uh, possessions and and be willing to give to the poor and this, these kinds of things, this sort of behaviors, and so that's where you get this idea that the kingdom is sort of both already and not yet. That there's a sense in which the realities of this kingdom are anticipated this side of the kingdom through the gift of the Holy Spirit in our lives that empowers us to live these this this kingdom way, but the full arrival only happens with the return of Christ. Uh, the, the renovation and resurrection of the body and our confirmation in the life of grace. John, thanks so much for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. Ed is listening in Iowa on iHeartRadio. Hello, Ed. What's on your mind today, sir? Yes, I was wondering if you can help me understand um, what we believe about the covenants that God made with the Jewish people over time, like the covenant with Noah, the Davidic covenant. Are those still in effect, and if they are not, what superseded them or replaced them? Yeah, thanks. Appreciate the question. One one tiny piece of clarification on language. Um, it's kind of anachronistic to refer to the covenant with Noah or Moses or David as a covenant with Jewish people, because the word Jew, of course, means inhabitants of Judea. That's where it comes from. And modern Judaism is, of course, a whole other thing. Right? Yeah. So Abraham, Noah certainly wasn't a descendant of Abraham. Abraham did not think of himself as a Jew. He was a Hebrew, mm-hmm. right? His children were Hebrews. Um, but uh, but that that's just, you know, semantics. But I do want to make that, that point clear. Because sure, it, sure. it confuses people about the relationship of modern Judaism to the ancient Old Testament mm-hmm. right? and to the Christian people. Um, so... Uh, the covenant with Abraham is the primordial covenant. This is the primordial sort of salvific covenant. It's the promise that uh, Abraham's heirs would be would would inherit the world, and they would be a blessing to all nations. And Saint Paul makes that extremely plain that that's kind of the primordial covenant. Um, now the the trick is God had promised Abraham that his phys- physical progeny would be heirs of this of this blessing. Paul tells us that yes but also those who are spiritually inserted into Abraham's progeny through adoption into Christ, which takes place not by adherence to the Mosaic Law, Mm -hmm. but by faith in Jesus. Now, why Jesus? 
This brings us to the next covenant, which is the Davidic covenant. The promise that David would not fail to have a, a, a descendant sit on the throne of Israel. Of course, the Christian position is that Jesus Christ is that Davidic king. And that we can be inserted into the covenant people of God, not in virtue of our adherence to the Mosaic law, but in virtue of our relationship to the king, who is the, the Davidic ruler, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Uh, Paul tells us that even the, the, his, the Jews of his day were not covenant members because they kept the law of Moses. They were covenant members in virtue of their relationship to Abraham. The law was added 400 years later because of transgressions. And that we Gentile Christians become children of Abraham through faith in Christ. Okay. Ed, thanks so much uh, for your call. We do appreciate that. Call to communion here on EWTN. Lisa is watching us this afternoon on YouTube. Hey there, Lisa. Lisa says, Dr. Anders, what could you say to encourage my seventh grade CCD students who have been invited to altar serve? Your personal thoughts on the value of this service and any scriptural or catechism references would really be appreciated. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate it. So I, I think one of the greatest values for young people to altar serve is that it gives mm -hmm. them a much better appreciation for the actual mechanics of the mass. Yeah. Right. You know, I have I have children that have altar served and and uh, and you know, let's let's be honest. Seventh graders, believe it or not, sometimes have a difficult time attending during Mass. What? Believe it or not. Shocking. Right? Sometimes their parents do too. Okay? <laughs> yeah, true. And there's something about being vested and up there next to the altar and having a job to do and taking it quite seriously that focuses your attention mm. on, on the nobility of this august sacrifice yeah. in which we're called to participate. Uh, there's probably nothing else quite like it in terms of getting you involved personally in the rite of the Mass with appreciation and understanding. Any uh, any uh, value there uh, regarding anything from Scripture or the Catechism? Well, any, any? I mean, you know, just the texts of Scripture that underscore the importance of the sacrifice of the Mass and the reality of the real presence in Holy Communion. All right. And appreciate that. And uh, Lisa, thanks so much uh, for watching us this afternoon. Now, here is a mind-bender for you, David. This is great. This is from Robert, who says... I was curious as to what theory of time you think is most congruent with the Catholic faith. Thanks for your great show, Robert. Yeah, that's a good one. I, I have personally deliberately avoided the metaphysics of time. Really? Right, as a subject matter. Okay. Right? All right. Um, and so I don't claim to be, and I know there are tense theories of time and untense theories of time and all this kind of thing, but I, I rather like... St. Augustine, what St. Augustine says about time, he says, I know what time is until you ask me to define it. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm kind of in his camp. So, you know, I, I, honestly, I, it's just, it's not been an area of personal study and interest of me. And because I, there's only, I only have so many days of life that I want to spend my time on. Yeah. And this one seems to me to have probably less, met, met, less existential import. And so I've invested less time in it. Well, there it is. Here's one now from John. Dr. Anders, I've read that Luke 12, verses 47 and 48, could be interpreted as Jesus hinting at purgatory. In this parable, Jesus mentions four servants. It's clear that the first two servants are heading to heaven and hell, respectively. This leaves the fate of the other two servants unclear, since they are both punished, but the punishment appears to be temporary. What's your opinion there? Yeah, thanks. So I, I wouldn't say that it hints at purgatory. What I would say is that it it establishes a moral order 
yeah. in which the doctrine of purgatory makes sense. Okay. Right, and that that's the way that I personally I don't I don't think there is a proof text from the Bible that you say well this this verse is about purgatory as such. Right, that's not the way we reason about purgatory. Rather, we try to get an understanding of what is the nature of redemption. How does it function? What's repentance like? What is penance like? What's satisfaction like? Um, uh, you know what 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 can Scripture tell us about um, uh, you know our post mortem existence or prayers for the dead? And we begin to build a kind of composite understanding of mm. the realities of the moral life and relationship to eschatology, in which purgatory becomes the logical inference. All right. And uh, John, thank you so much uh, for your email today. Here's uh, a question now from Micah, who's watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Micah says, do Catholics believe the church is currently the wife of Jesus or betrothed, waiting for the groom to return to be married? Um, yeah, thanks. So the biblical language on this is that the, that the, the church is the bride of Christ, right? That's the biblical language. Um, and, uh, you know, I think you're probably trying to press the metaphor too hard uh-huh. if you want to draw too clear a distinction between betrothal and marriage. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, so, I, you know, and, and, and if you press that metaphor that hard and try to make some sort of hard and fast soteriological distinction, I think you would be, I think you'd, I think you'd miss the point of the metaphor. Okay. Very good. And uh, since we have just a couple of seconds left here, why don't we say uh, just a few words about the wonderful website, calledacommunion.com. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. So, you know, before I got involved with EWTN, I got invited to participate in this website uh, that uh, that dialogues between Catholics and non-Catholics, Reformed Protestants in particular. Okay. And uh, the, the, the men and women who created the site were mostly convert, well, all converts to Catholicism from the Reformed tradition. Okay. Many of them pastors, theologians, uh, you know, uh, clergy people of different kind, really qualified. I was privileged to be a part of it. It still exists, and it's a wonderful repository, a database of theological reasoning on apologetical and ecumenical topics. And so I encourage people to go check it out, calledacommunion.com. I have a number of articles on there. Most of them are probably 10 years old, but uh, but it's well worth reading. Some gems for sure. Dr. David Andrews, I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Thanks, Tom. We hope everybody has a wonderful weekend. Be sure to join us on Monday for another full week of Call to Communion here on EWTN. We do this program Monday through Friday, 2 p.m. Eastern, with an encore at 11 p.m. Eastern. Check out the website by going to EWTN.com radio, then click on the word podcast. On behalf of our fantastic team here, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Hey, thanks for joining us. Have that great weekend, and we will see you on Monday. God bless.